Today is Monday, April 10, 2023. It's day 823 of the J6 political hostage crisis. I'm Mel Holly, and this is your Justice in Jeopardy update. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Justice in Jeopardy. We are honored today to be joined by an attorney who has been just a warrior for the J6ers and has taken on many big cases and and still in the fight. And that is Brad Geyer. Brad, welcome to this episode. Thank you so much, Mel. Great to be here. It's so good to have you here. And um, as I do with with all of my guests, I'd love to have you just give us a little bio on yourself. Tell us tell us who you are and and how you got to be uh, so involved with with this battle in particular. I was a 21 year veteran of uh, the antitrust division in the U.S. Department of Justice, where during the last five or so years, uh, I reported directly to the assistant attorneys general and and deputy assistant assistance attorney general of the criminal division and the antitrust division um and was working in a number of uh u.s attorney's offices on the global war on terror regarding procurement fraud grant fraud and science fraud so we basically built that program um i began that in early 2007 and kind of wrapped it up at the end of 2010 when that program was shut down a lot of the reasons why we have the problems we have now with ridiculous grant fraud, ridiculous science fraud, and nobody to investigate it is because um, in 2009, all those programs were shut down. We went to a compliance model where everybody does training and trains the tendency of everybody to commit fraud out of the system. Um, I left the Department of Justice in 2012 um, and just worked as a criminal defense attorney. In March of 2020, I was in Vietnam uh, trying to put together business interests involving um, uh, a green energy, energy uh, distribution product. And uh, COVID is coming in. And uh, some of the people I was working with were uh, ran the hospital system in Ho Chi Minh City. And long story short, they, they basically told me that all you have to do is take one hydroxychloroquine a week and drink lots of warm li- liquids and you're not going to get COVID. And I was outside the United States. I was kind of free of all the, whatever it is in terms of media and social media. Uh, propaganda. Propaganda. <laughs> I think it's probably based on IP, IP address, by the way. I was outside of all that. So I could see it all develop. And by the end of March, it had all the indications to me that we were heading towards uh, crimes against humanity, potential crimes against humanity slide. Um, and I basically just started working around the clock and, uh, we, we opened up a number of, um, news groups on Facebook. We tried to get the word out about, uh, early treatment. We had at one time, our groups had 200 to 250,000 trying to get the word out about vitamin D hydroxychloroquine. Um, I was looking back today. I was, uh, did some uh, promotion stuff about ivermectin the first week of, uh, first week of April. And then I just got, we got met by just this onslaught of, um, oppression from Facebook, just the most oppressive censorship great where they were building systems based on AI. And then they put in an oversight board 
and they put in some left-wing organizations, NGOs, um, all the usual suspects. Um, they do fact-checking, and they basically made it impossible for us to get our message out. And we were literally in agony because we knew people were dying. And I did many FaceTimes or, you know, those Facebook Lives where I was talking directly to Mark Zuckerberg and his legal department saying, you're permitting crimes against humanity to occur, you know, as clear as possible. And all they did is, is suppress us even more to where they basically eliminated the news groups and erased them. So summer of 2021, I realized we're in a deep slide and there's no way to stop it. So I said, the only way that I can really, as I feel it's my obligation, I have to do everything that I possibly can. So I said, I got to get a, a J6 uh, defendant that'll allow me to begin to unravel and unpack what actually happened. And I retooled the nonprofit so that, uh, well, it's basically what, what you see now. I mean, part of that is my thinking, but a lot of it is the people who join me in this effort because I'm surrounded by amazingly talented people. And now I believe the nonprofit is a force to be reckoned with, a political force to be reckoned with. As you know, you know, we're, we're, we're basically supporting the first uh, challenge of a uh, gubernatorial candidate in Mississippi with the courageous Dr. John Witcher, who everybody in the country should, should get behind. So I started to, work with and among the defense council on J six. Uh, there's, there's various camps and it's the defense council are highly populated with, um, uh, smaller firms who are not used to working and collaborating with one another. Like I am from the antitrust world where we work in teams. So I've worked to address that. I think we've got some really, uh, uh great results. We're in the process of unraveling that. And um, ultimately, involving all these things, uh, there will be justice. Um, I believe ultimately there's going to be uh, investigations involving crimes against humanity. Um, and that's, that's, that's our ultimate goal. We, 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 we have to get this resolved. Absolutely. So you started working uh, with, with a J6er at that point. Who, who was your first client? Ken Harrelson. Uh, Ken Harrelson's in Oathkeeper, um, completely apolitical. Uh, he got into being an Oathkeeper. Uh, he lived in Florida, hurricane zone. Uh, he met his wife, Angel, in Louisiana in the wake of a hurricane. She herself got wiped out of the family home, lived in a couple of trailers, both got wiped out by hurricanes. So this is like hard for people in the East Coast and the West Coast in Washington, D.C. to recognize this. But this is a different world. And um, so he started doing hurricane preparedness work. Also, uh, as Antifa began to become more pronounced with as the financing increased through a series of uh, non-governmental organizations, some, by the way, with taxpayer funding. Um, and they began to uh, be funding attacks on organizations, uh, different kinds of uh, civic organizations and political organizations. Um, he went and would, would provide security. Uh, we, we unpacked this, I think, effectively in, in the trial. Um, 
he he was acquitted. Thankfully, we acquitted him of the top line charges, conspiracy on the fifteen twelve, and sedition, which were really huge. And in my view, the jury pool at that time, uh, that was a floor. Like that was the best, um, the best possible outcome uh, that 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 anybody could get. Um, the only outcome that comes close to it was in the third trial, which is much easier because we've been, you know, dismantling the government narrative for an additional six months. Um, uh, Michael Green uh, was convicted of a misdemeanor in the third trial. Um, but it's like the difference between the first moon mission and Elon Musk's, you know, mission to Mars. Uh, and, and, and that was all part of a strategy on behalf of the government. Um, and I can, I can talk about why we're all sort of a victim of this, whether you're a line prosecutor, the FBI, defense counsel, defendants, or the courts, there, there's a reason how we all got into the situation. Would you like me to explain that? I would definitely like you to explain that. Yeah. Within days of January 6th, the Department of Justice opted to go on a, on a shock and awe campaign. Um, you know, you can look up shock and awe on Wikipedia for, for, for the definition, but basically it involves... It involves treating the information space like it's a battlefield, like it's battle space. And it involves overwhelming force that uh, uh, forces a, a, a feelings of futility on the part of your opponents. So they just surrender. And while that's very appropriate uh, when you're conducting war outside the United States, and in fact, a lot of these, the junction between civil law enforcement and war zone enforcement, uh, perhaps the best description of this is Army CID has uh, special agents who are active duty and they have special agents who are civilian. And they, they're kind of like interchangeable and um, they work in both spaces. When I was the Department of Justice, um, I was going to a war zone finding people who may have violated the law that we can get jurisdiction on violating us law and then coming up with unique methods to get them back to the united states for prosecution a lot of those techniques that we developed um <laughs> a lot of those techniques we developed it seems to me have been imported back to the united states and now they're using those techniques uh across the 50 states and the JTTF, you know, they have these JTTF with thousands of agents. Um, you know, those are joint terrorism task forces. And they're treating Americans like they're terrorists. This is completely inappropriate. Richard Big O. Barnett was deemed a tier one terrorist along with Osama bin Laden three hours after he got outside the D.C. area. And so they went on this shock and awe footing. Um, and... They created this, this capital siege production unit for information processing and dissemination of discovery. And you can see now in recent disclosures in the last few weeks, everybody's behind. Nobody's reviewed it. There's stuff that we never got. They don't know what they gave us. You have different versions of different data sets. It's a complete mess. Um, in the last four, four to six weeks, in the Richard Barnett trial, 
we released a lot of body cams on purpose, um, including we, the. You got to you got to play their game because that's what they've been doing in the courtrooms is showing things that do not have the defendants who are who are on trial at that moment or or even in the courtroom, you know. Just to to say, oh, this is what the whole thing was like, just like they did in the media immediately following. So so if we don't follow the same tactics, I mean, we've got to go on the offense. You know, that, that's how yeah. we can do at this point. And that was what. So the first piece of this is in Harrelson. Um, we showed definitively and this is based on thousands of hours of video. View. No one was paying attention to the East. First of all, the video was really hard to come by. Um, secondly. The, the effort to get the video reviewed by that people like Gary McBride, it really centered around the West. So no one was looking at the East. And if you look at the investigation done by uh, the big investigation on wh you know, what happened on January 6th by the U.S. Capitol Police, they almost don't even reference the East. So when I first came on, I saw the route that Harrelson came in at the time. We really didn't know. Like they were accusing him of breaking property they're accusing him of breaking windows they're accusing him of attacking police of course none of this is true how do you how do you disimpact that how, how do you unravel that it just required hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of going over video and so now we know that at 12 47 to 53 Epps there was a push through I would argue led by Ray Epps prior to that, Sam Andrews was there. Um, Sam Andrews was making uh, published statements about the necessity of 500,000 armed patriots to show up. The idea that the, the federal government wouldn't be all over that and be expecting that to happen. And like, it, I'm still amazed at how, how we have nothing in terms of discovery from, from Sam Andrews or frankly from Ray Epps that push through coincided with the discovery of the uh, improvised explosive device in the RNC. That prompted a very disruptive uh, change in communications between Ops 1 and Ops 2, which is the U.S. Capitol Police um, uh, channels of communication. At the top in the control room was the head of police uh, while, while Officer Sund, the, the number one, was calling for, for other agencies to provide backup. Um, uh, Officer Pittman had control, total control over communications and video. And when you look at the Ops 1 and the Ops 2 channels, she's, she's almost non-existent. Um, and I'll get into that in a minute. So they, they push through Keep in mind, there's about 20% of the police that should be there that day. I mean, this is another thing. No one's asking any questions. I don't understand why. Why did they only have 20% of what you would usually expect? And why were officers kept on buses and forbidden to respond until after people reach the architectural stage? But I digress. That starts what happened in the West. Yeah. yeah. In the East, going to, to Harrelson, uh, he leaves on the last security detail with um, uh, Tom Burgess and his, his friend, uh, Sergeant Jason Dolan. They have over a dozen protectees. Uh, they, they, they end up at, at the Senate egg just after 1250. Um, 
they're there for about five minutes when the push through happens. Um, you can tell from their body language that they were shocked and had no idea what they were seeing. Like it was a total shock to them. And you could hear uh, his uh, video, his voice on the phone. He was completely clueless. You know, they, meanwhile, the government's alleging that he's leading the sedition and that, and they're cutting edit, ed, uh, they're, they're editing the video deceptively to make it look like he and Dolan led the whole group when there were already over a thousand people that were out in front of him when they finally decided to go and chase down the, the uh, protectees who had walked to the stairs. 1257 or thereabouts, the initial push through happens in the Northeast. It's only about four to six people who move the barriers. Then the police spin around and walk in front like it's a parade. And you even have officers waving people on. There's an officer later on um, who's like waving people through, through the area that um, everybody was walking through. Most of those people had no consciousness of guilt. Less than a minute later, the vice presidential detail, which is in front of the East Steps, they start to roll out. When the last wheel, when the last SUV wheels start to roll, the group comes through the East. The Salt and Light Brigade is there. Lawrence Legas, who's ran three campaigns in Chicago and, and, and led the Oath Keepers in, he's there. Many other suspicious actors are there. They push through. Again, it's, it's, it's pretty peaceful. I mean, they're pushing and they're doing this stuff with the, with the, uh, the bike racks, but it is not the kind of violence that you had in the West. It's basically nonviolent. Um, there's an initial line that forms on the steps. It, they're totally packed in. So people at the ground level in front of the steps, when you're looking up, you can't even see the line of police a third of the way up the steps. It's like 19th century architecture. It's like an optical illusion. All you can see are the four tactical police at on the top. So anybody looking up is thinking that those four tactical police at the top are influencing the behavior of the crowd. Most people didn't know that the crowd kind of did a soft push through on that as well. And they just walked up the steps. They get up to the top. The outer Columbus door is open. There's a flashbang. Um, 225 is the first door opening. That's from George Tenney coming through um, the uh, 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 Senate Plaza doors at 213. That triggered the evacuations of, of the people that had the, uh, um, the, you know, the nuclear codes. Um, and then um, Harrelson and Dolan eventually find each other. Uh, they're on the steps. And at 235, you hear the national anthem being sung. That is cued by Insider 275 at the door. He takes two false starts. Third one, he puts his hands up. He starts singing. Everybody joins, including the provocateurs that are in front of the door. Um, the, you then see the Oath Keepers walking up the steps. They were, they were led to the steps. You see them walking up the steps early on. They're led by Timothy Allen Hart. You see that in one of the videos. Um, and they make contact with Harrelson and Dolan. They're on the steps. Um, and they, uh, they're clearly seen on the steps completing the national anthem. During the last two stanzas of the national anthem is when the attack on the police occurred at the Columbus doors. And there's eight to 12 provocateurs with Mace who blast the police with mace and the have any of those people been arrested uh that's that's a hard question to answer 
um, that that's a complicated that would uh, some yes um, okay. most no um, but they blast the police and then they start ushering and by the way we have exhibits to cover all of this so I would encourage you I can show you where they are we fought long and hard to get these introduced in the first Oath Keepers trial and they're so darn good and they're so darn accurate that the government actually took our exhibit and used it as their exhibit because we time synced it to the second and we have four screens, different angles. And we proved definitively that the oath keepers were on the steps and had no way of knowing about this coordinated attack on police. Now, as you know, now everybody knows this now, but when for the first year really that I got on the case, um, this was like guarded, like, a, like it was, it was like a government secret. The doors both times are open from the inside. And, and everybody knows that now because of our work, um, you know, uh, and uh, when, when, those, um, uh, when those police were ushered off, they then, uh, what, I, what I call purified in front of the, um, uh, in front of the doors were basically, there the really were very few legitimate protesters there at that point. There was an earlier kind of misting of the crowd with mace that got rid of a lot of them. And he had a lot of these strong arms that kind of came in. Um, and they went down and actually retrieved the Oath Keepers. Um, Insider 46, and I can walk you through this sometime. If you want to see this, I can walk you through this. Insider 486, Lawrence Legas um, retrieved them, brought them up right to the door. They took uh, Isaacs, who has Asperger's, and Legas and Insider 46 sandwiched him brought him right up, right up as close to the door as possible and put him inside of Insider 1340. Um, and then Legas went back and gestured to Harrelson and Megs for the rest of the crowd. And of course, there's miraculously a gap for them to walk into. They had 30 seconds to respond before the door opened from the inside and the crowd compressed around them. They were carried in. They went into the uh, rotunda. The worst thing they did in the uh, rotunda uh from the perspective of many people in Washington, I'm sure, is they got down on their hand on their knees and they prayed in the rotunda. That's like, that's as bad as it is. Yeah. Then they responded to Harry Dunn, who was visibly in distress. He was agitated. Um, he, he was sprinting from downstairs. He's, uh, I mean, there's a whole story about, he was just out of control and he clearly, clearly has not been truthful. And um, that story eventually will um, will come out. But at the time, the Oath Keeper's perspective is it isn't their job to nitpick or criticize the police. It's their job in all circumstances to protect the police and reduce pressure on police. So they basically created uh, a wall between them and the protesters and created a buffer between him and Dunn so, so, so Dunn could collect himself. Um, then they then they exited the Columbus doors, um, and we documented every single moment that the Oath Keepers were inside. You see them having a casual conversation with the police officer inside the building. Um, everything the government said, uh, 
in the beginning, certainly the allegations they made were false. Um, and because we basically had a jury that is not a jury of the Oath Keepers peers, every defense counsel will say privately that it's impossible to get a fair and impartial jury. But this strange world we're in requires us all, you know, um, all to pretend that, that it's possible to get a fair and impartial jury in the district when these poor members of the district, uh, these, these poor uh, citizens of the district have been bombarded with deceptive media just over and over on an endless loop. It involves the violence in, uh, in the tunnel. That's a big one. Just on an endless loop, just going like this. And the stuff involving in front of the uh, in front of the stage that eliminates any reference to what provoked the violence, and so the assumption that everybody came to in that jury pool at the beginning of that trial was that that's what happened in the East, and the dirty little secret and what we proved. I'm very proud of this because it took immense work, and it took immense work from experts who volunteered their time some of whom voted Democrat their entire lives. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. and, and we proved it. There was almost no violence in the, in the East other than the violence in front of the door. The last two stanzas of the national anthem, there was very little violence inside. If anybody's interested in that, we'll be happy to, to show you where it occurred. Again, the situational, um, the, uh, uh, the general rule is that there was no violence in the, in the East. And um, the general rule is that there was almost no violence inside. The general rule is that there was violence in the West in pockets. But in order to understand why, it requires you to dig into the video and the eyewitness testimony. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's in talking to so many different defendants and, and people involved in this who have all seen different pieces of the puzzle, you know, someone will be an expert on, on one part and, or another. And, you know, there's things we're putting together along the way, like you've got the flare gun and uh, you know, we'll finally get a picture of here's looks like here's the guy that, that shot the flare gun. Um, look at the timestamp on that. Look what happened. You know, the flare gun goes off and a minute later, the doors unlock from the inside. Um, we've got other people who have said right after that, also Ray Epps left the property straight down the middle. And, you know, you just, it, it's a lot of puzzle pieces and so many people working so hard to put this all together and to try to find the, the big solution in the end that's going to blow this all up. And that's going to give us the opportunity to actually get somewhere. But but as you said, you know, we're, we're dealing with a bias in the courtrooms and and whether that's from uh, on the jury side, because, you know, they've been labeled um, they are they are victims in, you know, when you're looking at the civil cases, they're victims. So if in all of this, the uh, the 
population of of DC, who's where the jury pool comes from, as well as uh, you know, the judges are are victims in this as well. And yes, and all these pixel people not only are they victims supposedly yep. legally, but they're they're victims of a of a massive manipulation of information and a, a forced narrative. So it, it makes it really hard to break through this. How do you think? Um, I mean, you know, what is your opinion on on the defendants? And because, you know, I've been saying for a long time that if everybody had just spoken the truth, yelled it from the rooftops from the very beginning, because I know a lot of lawyers and, and I don't know what your what your take is on this and, and how you've led your clients, but are very much um, do not say a word, do not speak out. But I, you know, I'm under the impression that if everybody had just shouted from the rooftops the truth the whole time, that maybe we could have been farther along in exposing what's going on here. What's your take on that? I think that there's some kind of information suppression or, or systems corruption, information corruption, systems corruption. Um, something is attacking us. I don't know what it is. And it's attacking the judiciary. It's attacking DOJ. It's attacking defense counsel. Um, I don't know if it's foreign or domestic. I don't know if it's, it's just how like information systems evolve and they've just gotten off kilter. I, I don't really know. Um, but what I can tell you, first of all, I want to say, uh, I very much enjoyed trying a case in front of Judge Maida and in front of Judge Cooper. I mean, it was truly an honor. They're, they're, I mean, they're, I mean, they're just, uh, I hold them in the highest regard, totally ethical, um, did as, as, as great of a job as they could. The AUSAs that I've, I've interacted with, totally on the up and up, totally ethical. Um, uh, the, the agents as well, aside from one, one, one mistake, which was, which was dealt with. Um, uh, and, and I really do view it that we're all kind of in the same boat in that this is all impacting us this way. And whatever this influence is, it's inappropriate for this influence to be having that kind of effect and that kind of an impact. And it's something we're all trying to struggle through. But it's like you're you're walking, it's like you're walking in cement, like wet cement. We're all walking in wet cement. The shock and awe tendency, um, the people that made those decisions thought perhaps legitimately. I mean, I, I probably could have disabused them of this if I was inside those control groups. I could have talked them down off the ledge. Um, but they were, I think, earnestly acting out of concern for members of Congress. All right. I want to uh, I'll give them the benefit of the, of the doubt. Setting up the capital siege production unit was a colossal blunder. And I say that as somebody who, when I was in DOJ, I knew more about electronic discovery probably than anybody else because I knew exactly how they did it in three U.S. attorney's offices. I knew how they did it in the antitrust division, and I knew how they did it in the criminal division. And I actually chaired a working group that analyzed all electronic discovery capabilities in the antitrust division. And we were the best because we did the most international work, and we did the most we did a huge mergers 
So we had to process information really fast because we had these timelines. And the criminal division, we'd have six to eight paralegals assigned to an investigation. When the investigation was opened, the criminal division would get one paralegal after the case was indicted. So the reason I'm saying that is because that's the disadvantage. I know that the line attorney, that the line prosecutors are in when they have this top-down pressure on them, you know, our system is at risk. You got to, you got to keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. And a lot of them don't understand because they're not from the, the competition world that what the government did is they basically, uh, asserted a monopoly over the public square and they asserted a monopoly over a version, one version of what happened, which is largely false. But like, if you look at world war two, there might be like 2000 historians that each have a different take on why world war two happened. They're all, you know, they're all different. It took it after decades, there's still these, these differences in these, in these different approaches. Those approaches were never allowed to occur. That was never like there was one, you know, iconoclastic position. Uh, the protesters did it and they're hundred percent. We can all agree that they're, they're responsible. And they asserted this, this monopoly over that. And then they assert, they, they treated the information space. Like it was like, it was a bat, like it was battle space. We're outside of CODIS. We're in Iraq and we're going up against Al Qaeda in Iraq. And they kept it, you know, uh, they put paralegals in charge of that. So the, the, the line AUSAs who are going, going up against me in the courtroom, they carry all the risk, right? But all the performance is done in this capital siege production unit. And I can tell just by how they name the unit that they totally lack self-awareness. Right. And when you see an institution that lacks that much self-awareness, you know, you got massive problems. And I know where all the problems start, how they fester, how they um, they, they just deteriorate over time by watching that happen when I was with the department. And that's what's happened in the siege production unit. You have local productions of discovery. That as best I can tell, the local, um, the, the, the prosecutors assigned don't have that much control over it. It's like dictated to them. And then you have these global discovery productions. We're on like 25 or 26. Between December and January, they went from, I think it is, 3 million documents to 4 million documents, right, in one month. Wow. Think about all the people that were tried before that. Um, and so, uh, again, the line assistants have, have, have all the risk. And as I, as I pointed out to them, when the pendulum swings back the other way and the next political administration comes in and they're, you know, the spirit of vindictiveness is in the air which is happening with greater frequency as that pendulum swings. And this is terrible for our system. Our system was always driven by career civil servants. That's a whole nother aspect of this. It's really problematic. Um, and we are all like, I'm an officer of the court. My job is to protect 
the instant the the uh, the institution of the court and make sure that justice occurs before the court. And it it breaks my heart when I see the courts so far out in front of their skis. We've done everything we possibly can to send up smoke signals, blinking lights, throwing our bodies in front of the train. Please slow things down. You know, we now know that there are undercover that we found through, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of thousands of hours of, of review of body cams. There's undercover MPD, many of them. It's anywhere, I think it's, it's over 30. Um, could, could be more. Just, just that you did, just that you've spotted. Yeah, well, um, that's sort of like a composite assessment based on documents we found and based on um, uh, some body cams that we found. Really just this week, um, we had the video making the rounds uh, that was posted on Twitter of uh, you've got an officer, undercover officer on body cam, I believe, who's who's who says, OK, so so we're going in as Antifa. You know? Well, we go undercover as Antifa in a crowd. So can you put that back in? Right, thank you so yep, much. Yep. It feels better. You guys get sprayed. Here, here. I actually just saw that, and um, I wasn't familiar with with that, which suggests to me that the ecosystem we were trying to create is actually happening. See, when when they declared a monopoly on truth and a monopoly on the information space and then put out all these protective orders that made the risks unacceptable um, for information sharing. Mm -hmm. What they did is almost think of it like a merger of all potential truths into one truth. In the antitrust world, the pre-merger world, um, mergers create network effects. And there's four kinds of network effects. I'm not going to bore you with all that stuff. We'd have to have an economist here. But the U.S. government arranged it, so they had they they got one hundred percent of the network effects, and we got zero. So the thousandth case that they tried, they benefited from the prior nine hundred and ninety nine. But the thousandth defense case, I'm I'm exaggerating for the purpose of making the point. The thousandth defense case, um, it was like the first case, and they were inventing the wheel, and that's really why. Because in order, and this is why defense counsel tell me, yeah, I saw the video and they think they know the video. It's like, unless you have somebody on your team that spent one to 2000 hours reviewing video, you don't know the video. And I can tell you that as somebody that did that, because we were at, it was almost like we were, um, uh, to, to like unpack the what happened in the east i mean it's like we were exploring uh you know mars for the first time i mean it literally was that everybody just assumed there's terrible violence no one is looking at what happened everybody's assuming their clients are guilty everybody's assuming that the big red line that that encircled the capital that's like laser etched looks like a Rand mcnally state right, state yeah. line we and we used to do uh uh, tease our uh, the government our filings with this stuff. You know, we like have a little bit of fun. Um, that if 
where I was on conference calls with where federal public defenders, it's like they, they, they crossed into the forbidden zone. The constitution no longer applies. I'm, again, I'm, I'm, I'm stating it more clearly than it was stated at the time, but, but it's just like there, the, 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 the it was like the attitude was, um, everybody's guilty. There's no way that, that, that they could be innocent. And, um, let's just try to cut the best deal. And Ken Harrelson is innocent. The, the, the Oath Keepers, in my opinion, are innocent. They did not do what they were, they were, what, what they were accused of doing. I understand how the government, um, through the filters that they're reviewing it, I, I, I respect their position. I respect the court's position. But I can tell you that over time, we will be vindicated. Because as the information, as these, as these systems, these ecosystems are created that had previously been suppressed, by the way, with the assistance of the courts, because though well-intentioned, they want to, you know, they're worried about future attacks on the Capitol or, or whatever, those protective orders prevented crowdsourcing. So the FBI could crowdsource away. They could have teams of hundreds of people reviewing the video and garnering meaning from it. Nobody could on the defense. It was too risky. And most of this stuff doesn't mean anything until you get over a thousand hours of review. Then it starts to make sense. And that's the travesty. And what's going to end up happening is, and, 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 and how, how the courts, in my view, are at risk with the special J6 jurisprudence, they got two out and far in front of their, their skis. We then this is my fault, right? Because I, I wasn't able to articulate this in a compelling enough way um, to the courts I was in front of. My colleagues weren't either. We weren't able to explain to the courts how the judiciary was, was you know, had, had this problem with risk. Um, how there's this 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 gross inequity and injustice that's 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 built into how the U.S. government decided to do it was the U.S. government scheming or being evil and doing it this way? They were trying to achieve uh, competitive advantage, like DOJ's done done forever. I frankly don't think that 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 whoever designed it uh, uh, would have known that this would be the result. So really, it's just sort of like a we're all caught in that walking through this wet cement, trying to figure out um, how to extract ourselves from this. And the message hasn't yet gotten to the Department of Justice that it's the wrong decision to use that JTTF constellation of agents to go out and do roundups. Yeah. I mean, that is the wrong is it, I mean, isn't isn't that illegal for them to use JTTF for for these raids? That's that that's a loaded question. Uh, there there's there's enough influential people and enough influential agencies and enough courts that don't understand um, what's at stake and too few defense counsel who can build the case necessary to show definitively that that's completely like our systems have have evolved devolved in a way 
um, that that makes it very difficult to 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 make that case. You know what I mean? Like right now, we're to the point where we're starting to see motions on, like like Brady motions. Um, like I don't know who else filed Brady motions, but I, I may have been one of the first ones to, to, to file one and appeal on that basis, right? Like there's just wasn't enough um, base loading, you know, foundational work because everybody was just so overwhelmed with getting bombarded with fire hoses that that kind of work couldn't be done and it couldn't be done across the platform. So therefore, no, I think we've all been ineffective at explaining to the courts why it's crucially important for them to slow things down. So, so, so too with the, the prosecutors, you know, they sign up for a detail. They think they're doing God's work. They're going after people who are, they're disliked. Um, you know, they're, many people frankly hate them i mean in my in, in my view that should be a warning light like looking back at history that should be a warning light you know caution 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 yeah but you know we're in feverish times now um but they too they came and took these cases and they are basically beholden to whatever the organ whatever the group is that's reviewing the stuff in-house in that uh, production uh, discovery unit and they're beholden to the group, whatever the group is that is making the government exhibits and in the Harrelson trial the government exhibits were outrageously false and deceptive um, but the government didn't know like why you know in order each each one of these like in, in order to understand why it was completely inappropriate to cut the video showing that the oath keepers weren't standing right in front of the door 15 feet away when on the los angeles times videographers video camera people were ushering police who had just been sprayed with mace off to the South in order to know why that government exhibit is off the charts, outrageous, prejudicial. I mean, like it is as if they altered a video to show that an alleged trigger man was at the scene of the crime close to the body when he was in another town. Right. That's what the government did with that editing. But I, I'm a hundred percent certain that the line A was says and the trial teams had no clue. And I doubt that the people cutting the video had a clue because in order to make those judgment calls, they would have had to put in, a baseload of another thousand hours of videotape because what we did is we took the French video and we took the Los Angeles times video and we took the Nigro time video and we took eight other videos and we time synced them. And we finally were able to establish that the oath keepers were on the steps during the time when on the government's exhibit, they were in front 
while the attack on police was happening. This is like really outrageous stuff. And even more damning. This is really damning. But again, prosecutors didn't know. The court exhibit that they used showing the Oath Keepers going up the steps cut off the part where you can see the Oath Keepers on the steps during the last two stanzas of the National Anthem. But in order to understand the how profound that is and how wrong that is and how grossly prejudicial that is and how any court should overturn this just based on that, it is unbelievably hard uh, to, to make that case. It requires so much work and um, it requires many people in many different teams, sometimes in different venues, to basically properly reestablish that as truth, particularly when the government has this monopoly on the one version and they're doing the tape loop of what happened in the tunnel without yeah. the context. And everybody, every juror coming in there is saying, Ken Harrelson, you're one of the guys that took the crutch and was it was hitting the police with it, right? You know, like this is what this is what we're dealing with. Yeah. So it's like we're all stuck in this terrible situation. Our institutions are 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 being egregiously harmed despite all of our best interests, uh, uh, best efforts. But you know in 2007 or six, I I'm so proud to be a former fed. I still am. I love my former colleagues. I love my colleagues on their side right now. Um, a lot of why I'm doing what I'm doing in addition to advocating on behalf of my, uh, uh, clients. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm looking after their interests too. Cause I, I believe them to be, be good people. Um, I cornered the market on the concept of former feds. That's, that's how, that's how proud I was of it. And that, you know, I've been, I've been using that. And I can tell you that early on, it was definitely a major, major plus. And in the last five years, it has just gone down. I yeah. mean, people oh, yeah. all over the country are really terrified of the FBI. This breaks my heart. Retired agents who I still work with are horrified of what they see. Some, and again, it's, I don't think it's an individual line agent. Probably, there's good individual line agents, but it's cl clearly involved some, leader, you know, some leadership and management issues, but even more so, the, the, the explanation that I think at the end of the day, and I'll take some time to unravel this, something is attacking our institutions. Something is attacking our, 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 um, our systems, um, our systems management and our, and our information systems. You mentioned, you know, just the uh, the fire hose effect, and I I think for for those in the community who are awake to what's going on in our world right now, what's going on in our country, that's how we feel. And um, you know, there's there's the whole medical field attack. There's COVID. There's the the jab. There's I mean, it's coming from all ends. You've got the the election fraud, which which of course is directly tied to January 6th because we wouldn't have been there if it weren't for that. But, you know, so a lot of us have had to specialize ourselves in, in on a certain topic and, and that's what I have done. And, and it's, it's very, so it's very hard to keep up with what's going on with everything else. But my point being, um, 
you know, we've seen things in the in the recent past, like the Russia hoax or the golden shower or any of these other lies that were were put out in in the mainstream media. And then when it came out that there was proof that these actually weren't true, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop, that it is the real deal, then then these media organizations will will quietly edit it or or put in a, you know, they won't come out and and put a new story in or or, or whatever. So how do we but the, the general public um, who's not paying attention still believes these things. And that's what they're going for. They love that. They they don't they don't want them to know that those things aren't true because then these people will start to wake up to reality. So, uh, and we've seen that with, with COVID. It, you know, although the truth is out there, it's been it's been easy to see for a long time. There's a lot of people who still refuse to to see it. They're wearing the mask and they're triple boosted and can't wait for the next one to come out. Do you think that? We ever get to a point where where this is all exposed and uh, J6, the reality of what happened on January 6th is out there and that we can change the, the history books will show that that is the story. H- how do you see that folding unfolding? Yeah, on on that one. Um, yeah, that's I, I think that's I think that's going to come out because. um it's 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 in the process of coming out. It's just not evident to everybody. Um, uh, this video is is ultimately going to be made public, and these these things that we're seeing now, the undercover officers exhorting everybody to go up the stairs, chanting with the crowd. Um, this new one where he seems like he's like you know I got to go back to being Antifa. Um, these, these are going to, these, these are like creating that, that framework that's, that's building a structure that's going to, when, when you look at the, 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 the footprint that current J special J six jurisprudence is creating, this structure is going to be like outside that footprint like a major part of that structure is going to be outside that footprint. And this is why I'm concerned for, for DOJ and, and for the courts. We already know that what everybody thought about the East was false. You know, there wasn't any violence in the East. We're beginning to learn that what caused the violence in the West was police misconduct and, uh, crazy use of police force sometimes provoked by what an expert I work with deems the torment zone. There may have been provocateurs at the leading edges whose job it was to torment the police and try to provoke responses to the crowd. Um, But clearly when officer Tao's running around grabbing tasers and just zapping people with tasers and then having somebody throw a 40 millimeter round into a scaffolding, which is enclosed. Um, and it, it falls short and it wipes out a police line who all starts spontaneously vomiting. That is outrageous. 
clearly throwing flashbangs into a crowd that's predominantly peaceful protesters, many senior citizens. That's outrageous. You know, a flashbang is a hand grenade without without shrapnel. Yeah. And there may be two people, we strongly suspected two people that died were were hit by the flashbangs. Um, I should say it's a suspicion, not strongly suspected. It's a, suspi- right. a suspicion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I um, think I, I think one is one is a, at this point from talking to so many people who have looked into this for so long. I, I think the, the, the kind of the general consensus from most is one of them likely and the other one maybe not as as much learning this right now i've been in this for how long yeah and i'm learning this from you because this is the first time you and i talked about it yeah right this is this is the this is the kind of the problem like if i would have had that information a year and a half ago we would have focused on the other one we could have figured out you know we could have tasked some people to look at that area at that time and right but none of that stuff can happen because of the protective orders right right yeah it, that's what makes it so hard and the stuff that they're sealing, you know, it's terrible. Uh, look, the, so, I mean, I've read the J six subcommittee report and it's preposterous. It's embarrassing. It's like the most amateurish effort I, I, I've ever seen. Um, they ultimately are going to, history will embarrass them. Um, I have a pretty good idea what happened and why. Um, and the long story short is that Trump, Pelosi, the protesters have a, have have a have a minority share. Um, it's when, when you're assigning culpability. Um, the police were were terrified. They were seeking management guidance, and they were ghosted. And they also weren't getting intelligence reports. So they didn't know if people coming into the building were armed. Uh, There was, you know, fog of war issues that could have been easily cleared up with with people who were in the video control booth um, observing things and putting officers at ease. Lieutenant Byrd was terrified. That wasn't he wasn't terrified because of Ashley Babbitt, he was terrified because he was ghosted by his management. That's why he was terrified. The tunnel, the tunnel, uh, and this is from police officers who are inside the USCP now, their currents. They thought they had to clear out the tunnel as an evacuation route for members of Congress. Wow. So you're always wondering why they came stomping out that's why and of course we know that sounds yeah, that, that that would be absolutely insane for that to be the evacuation route into into the fire right there that's where that's where everybody was i mean that would make no sense i i, I mean and i'd like to ask another question what you think about about the evacuation it, do you think it is part of i mean you know there's got to be an evacuation plan for congress okay so is part of that evacuation plan stacking furniture in front of a door? Because uh, th- that doesn't seem very professional to me, but yet that's that's what they did. 
So, you know, we're going to have to get all that information, the texts, um, you know, you have sergeant of arms, uh, communication chains. Um, the, the bottom line is I'm not convinced that for everybody that was earnest fear. Um, but recently, and I used to really be suspicious of that. Now I'm more inclined again, like we have to think of these things in terms of thought exercises because we've only analyzed about 30% of the information. Right. So now I'm leaning more towards, and by the way, that's how, that's how you get to the truth in prior ages, you know, prior ages, that's just how everybody, uh, how everybody did things. You talk about it in the public square, you talk about it with your neighbor, you know, you have experts, they come and talk about it. You get varied opinions, all this stuff. This is a new feature of American life where the government says thou shalt. And then they have their four government, uh, propaganda ministry networks promote that. And then they lock down social media, which has a monopoly on the public square. Nobody can talk about it. This is all new. Yeah. Yeah. That's so right. That is a great description of exactly what has happened. And I've, I've never thought about it exactly like that before, but you, you are so right on that. And the, the, so uh, we're going to, and we're going to get into all of that because that's sort of uh, it, it, when you're, when you're trying to assign, assign culpability, I'm looking for tells as to whether or not somebody really know, uh, knew in advance and, you know, played it up for the cameras and all that stuff. And I'm still very much on the fence. And frankly, I don't, I don't see that with, I don't see that yet with Pelosi from what I've seen. There's footage of her, you know, Oh, this is terrible. I'm so scared. And then, and then there's other footage of her not long afterward where she's just laughing and smiling and everything is fine. Some of that could be leadership. Some of that, I mean, the issue is was was their design, was it designed to fail the way that it did? You know, is this is this incompetence or were was was this an engineered situation where they created a massive wave of people hitting into police who weren't properly trained, who are understaffed, who were ghosted in terms of management uh, oversight, were blinded. Like all those cameras, you know, we now know there's 44,000 hours or whatever it is, um, of which we have, we don't even think we have 14,000, by the way. We, we think they have that all wrong and that there's cameras that have been removed inappropriately even from the stuff they gave us. But all those cameras, you know, are coming through a control room and they're monitored. You could have put police at ease. You could have, the, the, the responses of police don't make sense until you realize that they were all blinded and they had no managerial control. Yeah, that, so, that makes a lot of sense as to how so many people responded because because you do have a lot of, of police officers and and having been there, I mean, not not in a, a place where where something extremely violent was going on, like the tunnel or, or or anything like that. But you know, we saw that they were overreacting, and um and then when you go back and and everything that we're seeing that's coming out, you've got some some of these guys who seem to be leaders in trying to 
to get things going, like whether it's Tao or, you know, whoever. Um, and, and he did, he shot me directly in the face as I stood there videoing, doing nothing and ne- no violence was going on around me. And it was, you know, at the, very early on and I was, you know, I was there as media and that's, that's what I was doing. Um, but it, it's, uh, and then you, and then you see these other officers, you see the fear and, and the confusion, like they're like, like they're abandoned, like you're saying. And, and then we've got the other officers, you know, the, from the MPD who, who are having the conversation, I think on the East side and they're, and they're saying we were set up, we were set up. Why didn't they bring us in earlier? What the heck is going on? So you've, so you've got a wide range of emotions coming from all of these different officers. And, you know, it's in my opinion that, that some people did know what was going on. Uh, Some people had a job to do. And they were doing that job, whatever it was. And then others were completely in the dark. I think that's right. And I think that it's reasonable to think that some of the things that happened were by design or were reckless. Um, I'm talking about the early meetings in advance of January 6th, where because of turf issues, you know, one hand didn't know what the other was doing. People were left out of meetings. People had, as is, as is the case in Washington, people have different, you know, internal political squabbles, internal, you know, that have nothing to do with the election or anything like that. And, uh, but when you look at the, the key events of the day, I mean, it was all, none of it would have happened if they just properly staffed. That's all. That's all they would have had to have done. Yeah, proper staff and and metafo- megaphones and directions because the only people who were directing people were were these instigators. And if right. the police had been up there saying, you know, do not come any further, you're going to be arrested, any instructions like that, probably ninety percent of the people would have left. Big voice was not brought out until the night, so there was there was one. You, you can hear it. Um, I want to say it was around benchmark two o'clock. No, it was uh, two o'clock, I think, thereabouts. Maybe three o'clock. I'm, I'm, I'm hazy on this because you can barely hear it because it was so loud you could barely hear it. It was, it was underpowered and most people didn't hear it. So they made an attempt that nobody could hear. And for some reason, uh, they use big voice in the early evening. And you're absolutely right. If a police officer would have just walked up and down the line and said, we're bringing in reinforcements and you're all going to be arrested, you're committing felonies, please leave. It would have been over. Yeah. And no one did that. The police acted uh, ambiguously in, in many instances. Like in the East, and I, I want to be really, I, I want to point this out. The, the police in the East, deserve, this U.S. Capitol Police, deserve a lot of credit. Um, you, can, you can see in, the, in um, the interactions with the police, they didn't wear body cams. The crowd likes them, and they like the crowd. It's very evident. Um, when they're at the door, particularly at the second um, the second breach at the door open at two thirty eight thirty. They're blasted in the face with 
mace and chemicals and everything else, just, just hosed down by eight to 12 people, as I said. And nobody went for their weapon. They just stood and took it because, and my, my hypothesis, my working hypothesis on that is they realized that something was wrong. They realized that they'd been put in a bad position. Something wasn't right about this. The worst thing they could do is respond with force. And um, as a result, I think that those police officers in the East, one name that comes to mind, I know I'm not going to, I'm not going to mention his name. Uh, I've seen the name tags and such, but they deserve a tremendous amount of credit. Of course, they aren't the ones getting, getting the awards. It's Lieutenant Byrd. Right. Osteris. Yeah. I mean, the circumstances mitigate what he did, but that's, that's homicide. Um, uh, and, you know, Harry Dunn, who was out of control, he's downstairs in the crypt and he, uh, um, to somebody carrying a flag in the crypt, he yells, you have one fucking minute, one fucking minute. You're hurting us. One fucking minute. You're hurting us. Get the fuck out of here. And he was so uh, agitated. And the way he was holding his M4, his loaded M4, the officer behind him, he has a newspaper. You see it put, it on, put it on his back to steady him. And then another officer walks right in front of him and puts his hand on his shoulder to calm him down. He was out of control. Yeah. And on his way running up the steps, a magazine falls out. Click, 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 click. How often have you seen somebody carrying an M4 where the magazine falls out and clicks on, you know, skids along the floor, right? So he, he was out of control. Yeah. Um, and the Oath Keepers should get a Presidential Medal of Freedom because Harrelson saw that. His eyes were as big as saucers. He was concerned that the just the the close um, uh, the, the 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 packed nature of the crowd and just the nature of protesting that it was a dangerous public safety hazard. So he immediately spun around his back. Um, you hear, you see, um, uh, Dunn say uh, they're carrying him out on stretchers. Um, and uh, Harrelson says, really? A moment later, he spins around and he starts creating a buffer around Dunn. Dunn's agitated. He's holding the M4 and in, in, in a low ready. This is not good. This is not good. He starts basically creating a buffer around him, clearing out um, to just make Officer Dunn feel uh, comfortable. And when I talk to him about it, he will not criticize Officer Dunn. He's like, not my issue to criticize an officer. I am there to support the officer. I'm not there to be a critic. Like th this is how these this is how these guys to this day he doesn't. That's I, amazing. I, yeah, that's I amazing. A political. I haven't gotten a political opinion out of him. Um, I talk to him pretty much every day um, until this last uh, transfer. He's in Lewisburg. Much better treatment. Yeah. Uh, I can't get a political thought out of him. Like he, he's just, he wants to fish. He wants to weld. He wants to ride his Harley, spend time with his family. That's it. Doesn't even have a TV, not on social media. Um, this, this whole thing is just, you know, big, big old Barnett guy from Arkansas 
uh, works on cars. Everybody says has a heart as big as gold. Loves the police, all kinds of uh, benefits for police. Has a bad case of PTSD. He's in the West. He sees police, you know, walks in, no barriers, no police, no nothing. There's thousands of people around. He walks in, he sees a column of police come in and they're batoning everybody. Flashbangs come out and a crowd yells, he's on fire, he's on fire, put him out. He takes out his camera, he starts filming, he filmed the entire time and he's badgering police, he's mad as a hornet, he's badgering police, he leaves his, his um, uh, he goes into Nancy Pelosi's office, you can see the video, you know, anybody looking at it can determine if, 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 if he had freedom of movement when he was carried over the threshold. Um, you know, we, we see for yourself, you know, you can draw your own conclusions. Um, he thought he was going to be trampled by the crowd. We think the video shows that. He walks around. He goes into Nancy Pelosi's office. He's posed there by, by two uh, uh, photographers who take the famous picture. He bleeds on an envelope. He thinks he has to dispose of it. He brings it with him and leaves a quarter on the desk or at least some change on the desk to pay for the envelope. Uh, he leaves that without his flag. And um, then he is badgering the, the uh, police officers because he wants his flag. And for that, you know, he should be, uh, you know, criticized. But, you know, the, the state of just how things are in D.C., this poor guy that they snatched out of, that they designated to be a, a tier one terrorist, that they snatched out of Arkansas, um, who should be just home with his wife and family, in my opinion. And by the way, that's what we hear from inside the Capitol Police. Um, current officers believe that everybody should be home with their families. They believe that um, they were uh, they were set up. Um, and yeah, it would be it would be nice if we could get a a signed letter from a from a huge amount of them. You know, <laughs> anything that we could And this is a story. We'll see if we'll see if that story comes out. Um, but there's some there's some issues in Capitol Police, and um, no one no one can really talk. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. Nobody can really talk. Yeah, Nobody. I mean, I I was told there were NDAs signed before that day. Lots of NDAs. That, um, that, uh, were they were they specific to January six? Uh, no, this is a this is a practice that happened in recent years. Okay. Yeah, okay. no, it, it's unacceptable, and you know the Capitol secret police have offices in other cities. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah. And frankly, I have to criticize members of Congress on both sides. Um. They provided underwhelming oversight of DOJ, of the intelligence community, the antitrust division. Their monopoly enforcement has been abysmal. They're basically, from my vantage point, out of business. Um, to have allowed this to have devolved the way that it did. Um, and Congress is just not... I, I don't know if it's that they don't have, I mean, sure, you know, it's lobbying and sure it's, it's all the money they're getting and, you know, all the stuff you hear, but I think also, I just don't know if they have the deep expertise you need. You know, one of the, one of the best guys 
on antitrust, believe it or not, is uh, Jerry um, Nadler. Oh, Jerry Nadler, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, 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 he actually has, like, real chops when it comes to antitrust. Um, but in terms of uh, oversight of the antitrust division, the FTC, to have all these, um, to allow these monopolies to emerge and to allow the U.S. government to stomp on the First Amendment through uh, through social media platforms as the, an agency with the government. I mean, it's totally illegal. Oh yeah. And you know, they. I, I just can't believe. Like, I don't know why why they're allowing that to happen. Because it's bad for all of our children. It's bad for subsequent generations. I mean, that's what we're all in this for. I mean, I'm, I'm in this because J6 is a diversion effort. The dragnet, the JTTF resources that that suck all the law enforcement resources away from larger actual problems. It's, a, it's all a diversion from what are mass killings, tortures and killings in hospitals. Yeah. And, you know, I think that ultimately some of that is going to be determined to have been crimes against humanity. They'll be treated as such. And part of what, part of what we do is we figure out why, how, you know, you're asking how could, how could judges, prosecutors, and defense counsel, and defendants are all kind of like in this system and nobody can break out of the system. And it's the same thing in our nation's hospitals, you know, with, you know, there's a lot of drivers, but certainly, you know, standing orders and um, billing codes that basically allow you to make a million bucks. If you code something C19, step up oxygen supplementation Give them remdesivir for a $6,000 bonus and a 20% bonus on the total bill. Continue oxygen sub, uh, supplementation. Uh, depress respiratory uh, function. Um, go to uh, assisted breathing. Then vent. Get a $50,000 bonus. ICU. Wait for the, the money to run out. When the money runs out, speed things up. Get them over to hospice. If they haven't get that far. And there, you know, what we did is we came up with the 25 commonalities that suggest to us that that occur in all hospitals, all 50 states, and strongly suggest to us that we're in crimes against humanity times. And part of part of what I do and why I do it is because I believe that there's still people inside the Department of Justice, inside these investigative agencies that are struggling to be heard, are struggling, are struggling to cobble together with ASACs to implore upon the, the rack that they should make a real push with the seventh floor of the FBI and investigate actual crimes, actual mass killings. And, you know, we think these things function together. We think um, they're, they're all part of the same set of problems and it's, it's threatening the, the, the viability of our nation. Um, and I used, to, I used to have a longer timeline when I thought about how we were kind of descending into the abyss 
Yeah, they've Much they've they've time. sped it up. They've had to. I think they've had to speed up their plan because uh, they didn't expect so many people to wake up. And incidentally, that was the strategy for the Wolfpack widows, because we have Wolfpack widows, and I don't like giving away our strategy to the bad guys, but they listen to everything we say anyway. Probably or we have to at least accept that as a possibility. But a lot of those Wolfpack widows were basically awoken through that process of watching their loved one tortured and killed. And so, uh, uh, your, uh, Bezmenev, um, who I became familiar with in the late 1980s when I was in college, the four stages of decline and all that, you know, we're, we're at the end of the third stage or early fourth stage. We have yeah. to at least accept that as a possibility. That's to be one of our models for understanding reality uh, as a working theory we're in the late third stage early fourth stage and he says that um it's basically impossible to deprogram once you get to those stages and um my my belief because i spent 10 years deprogramming um i had a first amendment I did everything First Amendment. I've said and done everything you can imagine, First Amendment-wise, look foolish in every possible way you can imagine, all for the benefit of the First Amendment, encourage expression. That's a whole other story. But I remain convinced that there is a method, a technology, and we're close to discovering it for actually deep, you know, going through a national deprogramming. Um, and I think we're close. And I know that the Wolfpack uh, widows are a major part of that effort because they, when when people see the experience they went through, it gets through a set of shields. And also on the micro level, they also went through an awakening by going through the process themselves. So part of the people I work with are experts from multiple disciplines, you know, very disciplines, some of whom have uh, actually active security clearances. Some some have former, you know, uh, stale security clearances who worked in this space, and we're all actively working on this. Um, and for that reason, I I have to believe that there's people inside the government who are who are trying trying to help us because I'm trying to help them. I'm trying to help their kids. I'm trying. I'm I'm in this for their kids. That yeah. that's why. And I told Ken Harrelson, I said, you got to tap. You know, you're going to have to suffer. You got to tap. And what I can tell you is that this is much bigger than just J6. You know, this is uh, per per periodically humanity uh, gives somebody or some group of individuals the tap. And they have to step up and they have to fight them to have humanity. That's 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 why you're here. That's why I'm here. That's why Ken's there. These people are inside these agencies. They watch these uh, podcasts. Um, they're they're in groups that are doing things that they probably shouldn't be doing. They're struggling struggling to figure out a way to broach the topic. Um, you know, persuade others. So I'm trying to put some pressure on them so they can do the right thing. Um, and, uh, I'm just hoping to survive, survive till tomorrow. Absolutely. 
Brad, I know you've got dinner plans. Um, and, and I could, I could listen to you, to you share your, your vast, uh, knowledge and, uh, for, for a very long time. And, and I hope you will come back soon and, and we can talk about some, some other topics, but, um, I, I thank you very much. Thank you, Val. In the end, we win. That's right. 100%. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. All bleed the same red blood of patriots. Make honey great again. I guess we feel like we're servants and we have a product out there that's really cool. And we're, we're raising a lot, a lot, a lot of money for, uh, for different groups like yourself. Grown and bottled in America. It looks just like President Trump. Where can people order this honey? It's a very easy site. It's called MakeHoneyGreatAgain.com. Sales code MEL. Off it goes. Within 24 hours, it's shipped to you. Make America great again.